1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. This is episode four. I am Ken Levine. For many, many years I have been a television writer. What shows have I worked on? Give a listen. is that wow our thanks to Howard Hoffman who put that montage together I've been promising you a highly produced open and there it is my entire television writing career condensed into about 52 seconds Howard by the way is also the gentleman who put together the visual logo for this podcast Hollywood and Levine so again our thanks to Howard Hoffman One of the things that I do in my copious spare time is teach comedy writing to graduate students at UCLA. And the question that is always posed to me the first day is, can I make somebody funny? Can I teach somebody how to be funny? And the answer is, unfortunately, no. I do believe that your brain just has to be wired in a certain way to spot absurdities and appreciate them. And I'll give you an example. This happened several months ago. I was driving home from the airport in Los Angeles, and I was on the infamous 405 freeway heading north. And it's always crowded. Four o'clock in the morning, that damn freeway is crowded. Anyway, I'm driving along, and I see a billboard along the side of the freeway for Wells Fargo Bank, and it says, Wells Fargo Bank, your retirement starts here, and I notice that right behind it is a cemetery, so I laugh, and I think to myself, how many people probably Hundreds of thousands of people over the course of several months have driven down that same freeway, seen that same sign, seen that same tableau, and didn't put the two together and didn't find the humor in it. And it's not like I was necessarily looking for something that was funny. But when something crosses my field of vision, I laugh. And so I do wonder if that is a skill that can be learned in the sense that if in fact you really take the time and make the effort to be observant and to have your radar up So that you are looking for crazy things. You are looking for absurdities. You may find that they are all around you. One of the things that I've done for many years is anytime I travel for any length of time, I will put together a humorous travelogue of my adventures wherever we go, Hawaii or New York or Chicago or Italy, And I always find these really funny, bizarre incidents or crazy-ass names for restaurants, things that are just funny. And people always say to me, Wow, how do you always find these weird things? And my feeling is, you know, anybody could find them. I'm just paying attention. I am just on the lookout for them. So I think if, in fact, you spend a little time and really, like I said, keep your radar up and look for absurdities, you may start finding them. They may start emerging. And believe me, you will live a happier life if you are laughing more and especially the way the world is today, we need to laugh an awful lot. Coming back with more right after this. This is a casting story, and if you've been in the business longer than 10 minutes, you probably have one of your own. Over the years, we have cast many parts, and we have seen many different actors And they all come in with different approaches. But by far, the craziest one that we have ever had is this one. And we go back to 1993. And at the time, my partner David Isaacs and I were casting a pilot called Big Wave Daves. I'll pause for a moment as you uh, nod in recognition. Of course, yes, Big Wave Daves. Well, uh, this was a pilot kind of like a Wendy's and the Lost Boys. It was three idiots uh, from Chicago, facing a midlife crisis, deciding to open a surf shop in Hawaii. And one of them was married, hence the Wendy, and it eventually starred Adam Arkin and David Morse, Patrick Breen, and playing Adam Arkin's wife was Jane Kaczmarek. It was a great cast. And there was one other part, and that was a part of an expatriate, Someone who uh, we thought was kind of like a Jack Nicholson character as we conceived it. Eventually, Kurtwood Smith got the role and was magnificent in it. But we were casting this part, which was uh, called Jack Lord, by the way. That was the name of the character, Jack Lord. And needless to say, because it was sort of an offbeat part, uh, we saw some offbeat actors But none like the guy that came in this one morning. So to set the scene for you a little bit, uh, we're at Paramount Pictures, which was in Hollywood. And our office was on the west side of the lot. We were on Gower. In fact, we had a window that looked out over Gower. And what would normally happen during a casting session is a casting director, in our case, Sheila Guthrie was her name, would uh, go out to the reception area where the actors would gather who were going to come in to read. And one by one, she would bring in the actors and introduce them. You know, she'd walk in and go, and uh, this is Robert Duvall. Okay, nice to meet you, Mr. Duvall. And the actor would come in, say hello, read, with the casting director, and then we would say they were fabulous, thank you very much, you're great, and then they would leave and somebody else would come in. So this particular day, we were primarily casting uh, the Jane Kasmeric part, so there were seven or eight young actresses in their early 30s that were sitting in the reception area, and uh, we go to bring in this one actor, and Sheila goes out, into the foyer and comes back alone and says he wants to make an entrance. Okay, now, right away, this sends up a storm signal because an actor making an entrance, uh, what's he going to do? This is a wild card. So in the scene, the character of Jack Lord has just saved one of the characters who tried to go surfing and wiped out in three minutes. So the scene is that he enters the surf shop with this character over his shoulder. I'm just, I'm getting the heebie-jeebies just thinking about this. Anyway, um, the door bursts open and this actor enters... And he's this big, slothy guy with a gut and wild hair. And he is soaking wet. And all he is wearing is a T-shirt and shorts. And he has a giant, filled garbage bag over his shoulder, representing the character that uh, he had just saved. So he bursts into the room, and we, of course, are like, what's this? And the guy starts reading. He dumps the bag, and he starts reading with Sheila. And then, for reasons we don't understand, peels off his T-shirt. So now he's just wearing shorts. And again, his gut is just hanging over his shorts. We're just gobsmacked. We have no idea what is going on here. And then, a couple of lines later, he decides to take off his shorts, and he drops his shorts. Now, by the way, none of this is called for in the script. None of this. He drops his shorts, and he is just wearing tidy whities And as I mentioned, he was soaking wet. So the underwear basically became invisible. And little Willie then joined the casting session. And by now, our eyes are spinning. Usually, if an actor does something so outrageous in a casting session, you really have to bite your lip. You don't want to just laugh inappropriately at the actor. You don't want to embarrass him. Well, in this case, we just lost it. It's like, what the hell is this guy doing? And then there is a part of the scene where thunder is supposed to take place. And he's supposed to acknowledge that uh, Kamehameha, the god of thunder, hates Howlies too. And so, what he does is he goes to the window, and we had blinds on the window, and he starts rattling these blinds and shouting out this line about uh, Kamehameha, a- and there is a young couple we can see from where we're sitting a young couple in their early 20s, a couple of tourists with a camera around their necks, and uh, they hear this and turn towards the window and see this essentially naked madman screaming at them, and they just go batshit. They scream and run down the street. Well, by now, David and I are just rolling on the floor. I mean, we literally just rolled off the couch. We are dying. And this actor thinks he's killing it. Thinks, these guys love me. So he finishes the scene. I can't even tell you what happened at the end of the scene because my eyes were watering. I I didn't see anything. I was just laughing. I was in convulsions. My sides were literally hurting. And when he gets done what do you say? And I just turned to him (laughs) and said, uh, well, uh, an interesting interpretation. Uh, Have not seen that before. Thank you. And he says, okay, fellas. And he starts uh, gathering up his stuff and gathering up the bag and heading out. And we said, whoa, whoa, wait wait a minute. Um, You can put your clothes back on. And he goes, no, no, I've taken up too much of your time as it is. See you later, fellas. So he now walks into the reception area where there are six or seven young actresses waiting to come in. We hear from inside our office seven women screaming, including our writer's assistant. They're just screaming like like crazy. And so the guy goes into the hallway, and again, he's still gathering up all of his stuff, and he starts putting on his clothes. Well, the building that we were in was the same building that housed the Cheers writing room. And they heard all of this commotion. After a while, you're hearing all this screaming going on down the hall. So the entire writing staff now was peeking into the hallway to see this fat, naked, soaking wet guy trying to put on some clothes. And later on that afternoon, we're in our office doing something and Jim Burroughs comes into the office and closes the door and says, guys, what are you making these actors do? Well, needless to say, he didn't get the part of, uh, But uh, that's by far my favorite casting story. And as good as Kurtwood Smith was, he never made us laugh like that. Coming back with more Hollywood and Levine right after this. I would like to introduce you now to Bob and Ray. Who? Who? Bob and Ray, Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding. Bob Elliott, by the way, is the father of Chris Elliott, who you probably do know. Anyway, Bob and Ray, back in the 40s, were a couple of radio announcers on a station in Boston. And whenever there was a rain delay of the Boston Red Sox games, uh, the station would throw these two guys on the air to basically just kill time. And they would banter back and forth, and they developed an amazing chemistry. They were both very, very funny. And they became one of the leading comedy teams of the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. In fact, they even appeared on Saturday Night Live. They're amazing, and their timing is absolutely brilliant. It is a master class in comic timing. I'm going to play you now one of their most famous bits.
2: So if you notice lately uh, the in vogue words, uh, words like, uh, well, I guess they always were in the dictionary, but suddenly you hear them more and more. Words like pejorative, charisma, certainly, uh, dichotomy. Suskinisms we call them. We, uh, we use that in the pejorative sense, of course. And Expertise. You hear that all the time. Now, that implies that you're listening to the words of an expert. And that's one thing we have plenty of here today, our experts. We're delighted to have with us the world-renowned Komodo Dragon Authority (laughs) from Upper Montclair, New Jersey, Dr. Daryl Dexter. Dr. Dexter, would you tell everybody all about the Komodo Dragon, please?
0: The Komodo Dragon is the world's largest living lizard. (laughs) It's found on the steep-sloped island of Komodo in the Lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and nearby Rinjepadaran Flores. It's a ferocious carnivory, and one swipe of its tail can render an enemy senseless. Now, where do they come from? The Komodo dragon, the world's largest living lizard, is found on the steep sloped island of Komodo, hence its name. And that is in the Lesser Sunda chain of the Indonesian archipelago and the nearby islands of Rinja, Padar, and Flores. We have two in this country. Two Komodo dragons, which were given to us some years ago by the late former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno. I believe I read somewhere where a foreign potentate gave
2: America some Komodo dragons. Is that true?
0: Yes. The former premier of Indonesia, Sukarno gifted this country with two Komodo dragons, world's largest living lizards, some years ago. And they're in the National Zoo in Washington.
2: Well, now, if we wanted to take the children to see a Komodo dragon...
0: (laughs) uh, Where would we take the children to see
2: a Komodo dragon?
0: If you were in the vicinity of our nation's capital... Washington, D.C., you would take the kiddos to the National Zoo. And there you would see two Komodo dragons, the world's largest living lizards. There's a stuffed Komodo dragon in the lobby of the Royal Hotel in Kathmandu, Nepal. I believe they're of the lizard family, I think. Yes, they're the world's largest living lizard, and they're ferocious carnivory. One swipe of their tail can render an enemy well, Doctor, senseless. I believe we've
2: just about exhausted the subject. I want to thank you very much for coming by. I know it works a great hardship on you to come in here from Upper Montclair, New Jersey. Yes, and I, mean, I want to thank you. Do you have a, a ride home? No, I don't. Well, uh, maybe somebody here in the audience. We'll be kind enough to give you a lift after the show. That would be very
0: nice. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That's Bob and Ray. Now, about 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to direct an episode of Late Line, which was a show starring now Senator Al Franken. We did that in New York, and we got Bob Elliott to guest and do a voiceover. So I was very excited to meet Bob of Bob and Ray, and he came in during the lunch break, and I got a chance to chat with him for about a half an hour, and then I brought him down to the stage, and everybody was there, the whole crew and camera guys and everything. I think it was camera blocking day, and I made a big announcement. I said, excuse me, everybody, we have a a real special guest on the set today, Bob Elliott, From Bob and Ray, silence, nothing. None of these people knew who he was. And he turned to me and he said, 50 years of show business and it was worth it all for this one moment. Anyway, he started doing his thing and everybody was laughing so hard that we had to just do take after take. They really are brilliant, Bob and Ray. This is Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine. Got more right after this. Okay, time now to answer a reader's question. And this is a feature that I started in my blog called Friday Questions in which every Friday I answer questions about television or radio or baseball, anything that you think I might know the answer to, all you got to do is go to my blog, go to any blog post, and there's a comment section. Go in the comment section and write your question. I will see it. I try to answer as many as I can, both on the blog and now on the podcast. So this one comes from Daniel. He actually has a couple of questions. Daniel says, I've seen many TV writers make comments about residual checks being only a few cents. Is that true, or are you exaggerating for comic effect? And secondly, without getting into specific dollar figures, can a writer ever get significant residual checks, thousands of dollars or more, when a series first goes into syndication? Okay, um, believe it or not, I have actually received checks for one cent. Yes. Now, it must cost the production company, what, $5 to process the check and to send it, but I have indeed gotten checks for one cent, two cents, three cents, and I'm not alone. Most writers will tell you the same thing. Uh, these minuscule residuals are a reality. Now, there's a bar in the San Fernando Valley called Residuals. And back in the day, if you brought in a royalty check of less than a dollar, you could trade it for a drink, and then they would post the check. But so many people were doing that that they had to discontinue the practice. Now, one time I got a letter from MTM, saying that that year they realized that they overpaid me by three cents and demanded that I return the money. Take a guess at how I responded to them. On the other hand, you can make significant dollars in first-run syndication, assuming that you've done multiple episodes and assuming it is a show that is going to go into first-run syndication. Uh, It's not like it used to be in the old days, in the good old days, where a show would go into syndication on your independent TV stations, your Channel 5s, your Channel 9s, your Channel 11s, that sort of thing. Well, now that shows are being syndicated through cable networks, Eh, the payday is not nearly as much. And as the shows continue to run over time, you make less and less and less. I'm still making money on MASH episodes that I co-wrote with David Isaacs way back in the 70s, but I'm getting checks for $4.95, $8.22, that sort of thing. Uh, But if you are... Uh let's say let's say you wrote uh, a bunch of episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond and that's in syndication all over the place. Yeah, you're probably going to make good money for a good number of years. And David and I realized that when we were on Cheers and we knew that every episode of Cheers that we wrote was just going to be like an oil well that it was going to continue to just pump out money. And so we wrote as many episodes as we could. If they would say, oh, hey, last minute, we need an episode uh, written over the weekend. Who wants to give up a weekend to write an episode? David and I volunteered. Or if they said, gee, we need somebody to write an episode over the Christmas holidays. Anybody want to do that? Dave and I Always volunteered. As a result, at the end of the 11 year run of Cheers, David and I wrote 40 episodes of Cheers, and we are still seeing pretty good money from that. But if you just write one or two episodes of a show that may or may not get into syndication, I don't think you're going to see an awful lot of money. The big syndicated show currently, in terms of comedy, would have to be The Big Bang Theory. But that show is room-written, and writers are just sort of assigned credit. So Chuck Lorre and usually one or two other writers will get story credit, and a few other writers will get shared teleplay credit. So through the course of a season, you may get your name on five or six episodes of the Big Bang Theory, and you figure, well, that's a pretty good payday. It's actually not, because you are sharing that residual with another five or six people. And what happens in 20 years when they try to divide that one cent? That's the question for this week. Back with more, right after this. Uh, All right, and that's going to do it for episode four of Hollywood and Levine. Let's start that closing music. All right, I love it. Again, our thanks to Howard Hoffman for coming up with that amazing montage. My entire television career in 52 seconds, and some of those shows lasted longer than 13 weeks. Also, our thanks to Adam Butler and to Susie Meister-Butler and to you. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Please subscribe to this podcast. Also, uh, if you would see it in your heart to give me a five-star review, that would certainly help. I don't know what it would help, but it's something I need, I guess, uh, for my own validation. Anyway, see you again. Hope you enjoyed the show and you got in your 10,000 steps.